0: Edward in the sunlight was shocking. I couldn't get used to it, though I'd been staring at him all afternoon. His skin, white despite the faint flush from yesterday's hunting trip, literally sparkled, like thousands of tiny diamonds being embedded in the surface. He lay perfectly still on the grass, his shirt open over his sculpted incandescent chest, his scintillating bare arms. His glistening, pale lavender lids were shut, though of course he didn't sleep. A perfect statue carved in some unknown stone, smooth like marble, glittering like crest. Hi and welcome to The Mean, I'm Ryan Huber, and joining me as always is...
1: Me, Nick. Me, Nick. Nick
0: Nick Seagraves, and we're here to talk to you about sparkly vampires. Yes, indeed. Sparkly Vampires is episode 39 of The meme. What we really wanted to talk about was Romanticism, the philosophical and literary and artistic movement that started a little bit before the turn of the 19th century, but really took off in the the 1800s. But what we wanted to do first was ask the question, how did we get here? How did we get to the passage from Twilight I just read about Edward Cullen being a sparkly vampire? Nick? Mm -hmm we don't want to just have an episode here about making fun of romanticism because we think romanticism is kind of neat. There's some good things about it and some bad things about it. And it should be taken seriously as a major turning point in human, at least Western history. But what happened? Like usually in the mean, we kind of work from the, from the, you know, from the pop cultural, and then we'll go back to the, to the elements of philosophical stuff that's going on. But, just just so that we can be fair from the outset what what do you think happened to romanticism that made it into something that is recognizable as twilight rather than the poetry excuse me of Edgar Allan Poe or the the philosophy of of Jean-Jacques Rousseau what what happened what was the process? And I know I know I know that romanticism isn't the only thing that this has happened to. So, I guess I'm asking about sort of cultural dissemination of philosophical movements.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I think philosophical movements are obviously super influential on art and culture and even pop culture because a lot of them have within them an aesthetic It's kind of how science has an aesthetic, if you know what I mean. So you have those images of um, like lab coats and you have these kind of like Dexter's lab creations where it's like science is really cool. All the things about science that we probably aren't thinking about, like getting a research position, being in a team of 20 people doing minimal tasks and collecting data and putting it into a computer that maybe as well. Um like all of that stuff is like oh tee that's not part of the aesthetic. And I think philosophical movements kind of have the same um, the same draw. So when you think of romanticism you see like this guy like standing on a cliff over like the mist of the Matterhorn and like looking into the sky or a uh, two lovers who are, you know, doomed.
0: Drowning in a bathtub.
1: Drowning in a bathtub together, though. Mm-hmm.
0: But the bathtub's so. in the North Sea.
1: Yeah, it's a bathtub in an ocean. Yeah,
0: that's the mm-hmm. that's why it's symbolic.
1: That is what love is, though. So mm-hmm. I guess it's pretty essence
0: accurate. Of it. So yeah. you're basically saying that there are very serious things like science and, and philosophical movements that there's a sort of an aesthetic to and sometimes the actual thing itself gets separated from the aesthetic and then the aesthetic can live on in kind of cheap pop cultural mm-hmm. ways. Whereas serious kind of practitioners of the thing itself kind of go in a different direction. Maybe they evolve, maybe they keep doing what they're doing, but they do kind of the grunt work, the everyday grind it out type stuff. Well, we're all yeah. appreciating some kind of a family guy joke about it.
1: Yeah. And I think romanticism, if you, you know, gloss over it, is very appealing to a lot of people, you know, the idea of like completely giving in to this overwhelming emotion that's just so true and so beautiful and natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people like that, and I think through people being attracted to that side of it, they we get Twilight in some ways, which is like romantic Diet Coke diluted with water. In a car for four hours romanticism, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it is. It's totally diet romanticism. But let's, I want to identify a few of the elements in Twilight and and similar stories that we would not have, that we would not see in our culture if not for romanticism. Uh, And then we'll go back and explain how it all began. So first of all, vampires. Mm Mm-hmm. Anything else you you want to say? Like I'll say <laughs> about, one, about
1: vampires. Well,
0: no, I'll say one, and then you say one. So just take Twilight. I'll say one. I'll say something that we have that that Twilight kind of features because of romanticism, even if it's a cheapened form of romanticism. And then you say another thing. So I'll say vampires, and you say Dracula. I mean, that could be the way this direction go. The game, this direction of this game goes. But what I was thinking is, is there anything else in Twilight that We only have Because of Romanticism.
1: Oh, well, I mean romantic love. Okay, so
0: (laughs) so vampires, the idea of romantic love, I would say this kind of idea that love is undying, that death, Mm -hmm. this this love-death thing.
1: Yeah, people are really into that.
0: um, I think also the idea of, I don't know if you know Twilight really, really well, or if you don't, which I hope you don't, not really. Yeah, so one of the things that you're always seeing... I've never read any of the books, but I've read enough uh, mocking fan fiction or critiques of Twilight to know this. One, one of the things that's always happening is that Bella, the the main girl, she's always saying, like, oh, I'm so normal. There's nothing special about me. Um, I, You know, I'm just... I'm not even funny. I'm not interesting. There's nothing great about me at all. I don't know why he would ever choose me. And that's a very romanticism, you know, romantic mm-hmm. kind of a thing. So we're going to take vampires, we're going to take death and love, we're going to take this kind of romantic notion of what love is, we're going to take kind of the everyman. Uh, also, they like to walk around in forests all the time. Like, that's all they do mm-hmm. is walk around in forests. So we're going to talk about walking around in forests, we're going to talk about all these elements and and why they are rooted in a philosophical, literary, artistic movement called... Romanticism. Romanticism. So let's go way back, Nick. Let's go way back to the beginning and um, talk about that sad boy who died in London in like the 1700s. Can you tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about that?
1: Yeah. Well, from my understanding, this was like the first super public romantic soul, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So you kind of have this... These ideas about, oh, um, I'm like misunderstood. I am like this Promethean genius that mm-hmm. is being suffocated by the world or whatever. But this guy actually uh, did it. So I, mean, I think that's, that's his claim to fame. Is he thinking that no one could understand him, thinking that his genius was just too great, killed himself. So, I mean, that's, like, I, I think it is important for the movement of romanticism because it's the, this kind of fluffy nature kind of emo idea being used in a very physical with consequences situation. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, and there was other, other examples of that, like, I don't know, this, like, little thing called the French Revolution, Mm-hmm. um yeah so they're definitely it's definitely not like this idea was just oh we got like some cool poetry Wordsworth's fun tee he it's also like we also got giant political movements we got some dudes killing themselves because of poetry
0: we got water water everywhere not a drop to drink
1: so true too thanks coldridge he's cute though yeah he's a cutie we yeah.
0: got we got the raven
1: the raven
0: but but why did this all start like yeah we're gonna talk about all this stuff and lord byron and keats and Yeats and blake and all these wonderful cool mm-hmm. boys but why did it actually start like why why okay why wasn't romanticism going on in the 1600s why did it really really explode in the 1800s well it
1: had to have its reaction you know so its reaction was was uh the multiple there there was obviously a distrust of enlightenment optimism so you have the enlightenment that was like science is so great and like everything is so awesome and i really 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 love all this stuff and i really really by I, I mean we i don't know why i am the the spirit of europe right now but we if everyone not, we can- are not amused <laughs> If if everyone can just start thinking rationally for themselves, then we can kind of reach this point of human progress in utopia. That would be amazing. That didn't really work out. Mm-hmm. I think some people were like, oh, oopie doopie. That, that didn't seem to happen, guys.
0: As you and I have discussed previously... There were two huge schools of thought during the Enlightenment, which was going on from around Mm -hmm. the early 1600s to around the late 1700s, right? That's like the Mm -hmm. prime time for the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And it's empiricism and rationalism, which we're not going to really get into. But what I like to talk about with the Enlightenment, I like to give it kind of an umbrella term. And the umbrella Mm -hmm. term for me is machine thinking.
1: Machine
0: thinking. Uh when you look at metaphors during the Enlightenment, almost everything is a, a metaphor about some kind of machine. Like, hey, Nick, if you had to describe the deist conception of God, what metaphor would you use?
1: Mm-hmm. A clock.
0: Oh, so God is like a clockmaker who winds the clock and then lets it go, right? So almost yeah, like totally. almost every major analogy is building off of this machine thought because machines had changed a lot of people's lives, mostly for the better, but there were also some downsides. And so, like, if you had to say, who is the intellectual rock star of the Enlightenment that everybody was kind of building off of, who would you say? Just the intellectual, like, not it doesn't have to be a philosopher, just a person who everybody else is like, I've got to talk about this person because this person is, like, changing the way we think about everything. Newton. It's Newton. It's Newton. Yeah. It's Isaac Newton, not Olivia Newton-John, although she is also a major figure in, mm-hmm. you know, the advance of ideas such as let's get physical and spandex and other things of that nature. Um, but yeah, Isaac Newton, right? Mechanics, classical mechanics, theories of physics, mathematics, also a little alchemy, but hey, who hasn't taken a left turn now and then in their life towards trying to turn lead into gold? Yeah. Um yeah, so it's like, you know, it's understandable, but everyone's taking their cue from Newton. Okay, so we get about 200 years of that. We get the American Revolution kind of going on. Some things mm-hmm. are like starting to come back around. And what would you say, was there any historical catalyst? Was there any one moment or was there, were there a series of moments that kind of you, you see as like, wow, this is like when Romanticism really started to go, no, 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 no no, 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 mind, we also need the heart, or no, 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 machines, we also need trees. Is there something in your mind that was like, this is, we've had enough of this?
1: I think, I don't know if it was, maybe you have a moment in line. I kind of see it more as a slow whittling away. Mm, I like that. I see it as this classical mechanic's um,
0: Industrial Revolution. Industrial
1: Revolution from that, you know, mm-hmm. with the machinery applied yeah. to regular things. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: urbanization.
1: Urbanization. I see that as kind of saying, okay, well, everything's mechanical. Great. Look at all the certainty we have.
0: Yay, bup, yay, bup, yay, bup, yay, 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 yay. But,
1: but what about all these other things that all of our societies have really, really enjoyed? in the background and so you know things like uh like uh religion and art and social norms mysticism and, mysticism and spiritual needs and, and emotional nature. needs and what does classical newtonian mechanics really have to say about love and yeah, about like when i
0: see a woman walking down the street in a small town and the mm. pink, the pinkness of her cheeks makes me feel something What does Mm -hmm. the Enlightenment have to say to me about that? Like like what what does how is that mechanical? Like and yes, at some level it's it's chemical and therefore physical. But like I think people were kind of going, like, hey, I have a whole part of my life that this whole Enlightenment rationalism empiricism doesn't help explain at all. Like it really doesn't do anything for me. And you know what, Nick, since art is usually made by the bourgeoisie and the rich, think about this. The machines, and I'm sure someone's written this, the machines that afforded everybody all this extra time may have actually led to romanticism in addition to being something that romanticism was reacting against. Yes. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yes. I mean, well, because you also have to have the time. You're right. Yep.
0: So like you have to have the time. Mary Shelley is a seventeen year old girl writing one of the greatest novels of all time, hanging out with a bunch of bisexual poets in England, right? One of them, so, them is
1: her husband. One of
0: them is her husband. They're having a great mm-hmm. time telling stories by the fire. Like who's who's funding this? You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like who's allowing these out like what do we do? Well we hang out by the hearth for four hours and we drink sherry and we get blitzed and we talk about monsters
1: mm hmm Well, see that's the other thing too, though, kind of like not a counterpoint, but also maybe like a um kind of a alongside that is Lord Byron is lord byron he's part he inherits the that's, money of the not aristocracy. just like his par-
0: like his parents didn't yeah. decide to to name him lord
1: yeah he so he has money from an old system. Which surprisingly survived um, the, landed, the Enlightenment. It
0: landed gentry, right?
1: Yeah, I mean the Enlightenment didn't really. I mean, you could maybe say that it sowed the seeds of the death of the aristocracy and things like that. But it took away. But while. it definitely. But it wasn't really radical yeah. because you have to like people like Locke and. um even Kant, weren't really interested in radical politics. And they we, weren't we, really. We know all this is yeah. true
0: because of Downton Abbey. Yes, <laughs> I mean, if, if you, you need,
1: <laughs> if you need first source material, uh-huh. you just I would definitely look there. Um, it's a great resource.
0: But in all seriousness, so Downton Abbey, like they start to have real problems after World War One. Mm-hmm. Like that's when it gets really really real for them because of a lot of different factors but most of the landed gentry most of the lord byron level type people they're not really experiencing yeah and this is interesting like i've seen a lot of people kind of get mad at god or get mad at the universe or get very dark about life not because of their own suffering but because Mm -hmm. of the suffering of others Um, a lot in, in my life, I've just really experienced people tend to get more angry and more outraged about things that they read about things they see on television. Um, and empathy is a great thing, but it, it would, it would, I would ask like most of the people producing this romantic art, like, did you actually live in cities? Like, did you actually experience it? Were you a worker? Were you part of the proletariat? Like, did, did you like have to breathe smoggy air? Like, and some of them probably did, but a lot of them were probably these people who were living out in landed kind of, you know, country estates or living Mm -hmm. in cottages by ponds. And they Mm -hmm. were probably, like, they went into the cities from time to time. And when they went into the cities, they saw how kind of dirty and gross and how people kind of seemed miserable. But isn't it interesting that a lot of these writers, they didn't really live in the cities? So we can say it's a reaction to urbanization and to... Um, industrialization into the enlightenment, but a lot of these people were already they already had places to go that were far away from the noise and the and the the flash of the sort of industrial revolution
1: yeah and and whether they they participated in a system that guaranteed them that kind of social security yeah you know so I mean wordsworth definitely wasn't like rolling in dough. Yeah. But he didn't really have like a day job, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean in Coolidge, being an opium addict, I don't even know what he did. <laughs> like I don't really know what was going on. No, that was his
0: day job is to be an opium
1: addict. He had to buy some
0: all the time. Isn't it crazy how how like like yes we still do have drug addicted geniuses in our time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's crazy that like you, that like some of these guys had pretty long drug addled careers like that you know it wasn't like five years for Kurt Cobain you know it was like, yeah these guys kind of like figured out how to how to make it last
1: they were better at it I
0: also just... I like how Kierkegaard was able to plan almost to the minute his death with his allowance running out like his money his money and his life ran out almost completely simultaneously perfect like who would want to live if one did not have an allowance from one's father? <laughs> so that I,
1: I, mean, I wouldn't. Work.
0: Exactly. All right. So we've made some jokes. We've talked about the beginning. Let's talk about some major figures and ideas of romanticism that really started to define the movement. And so everything's on the table from art and music to literature and philosophy, um, and we're talking about England, we're talking about France, we're talking about Germany, we're talking about mm-hmm. a little bit later, the United States of America, which had just formed. Uh, mm-hmm. And we see Romanticism kind of starting to morph into individualism and transcendentalism over over across the water. But for you, what are, what are some of the things that if someone's listening to this podcast and they've never really thought about Romanticism before or where that word even comes from, what are the, some of the major people or ideas that they just have to know? in order to grasp this concept.
1: Yeah, I think for English speakers in particular, um, Wordsworth is great. Um, He's kind of like the big dad, if that makes sense. First
0: first of all, his name is Wordsworth. mm -hmm. So you kind of have to read him.
1: Yeah, like if you're going to read one person, I would probably read that. He says something along the lines of poetry, and a lot of times when romantic people say poetry, they're They're talking about all art. They just mm-hmm. they they just say poetry. Um, Would you like but, the to read
0: a quote from him? Yeah, go for it. <clears throat> this is from the always accurate Wikipedia. So okay, to William Wordsworth, poetry should begin as quote the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings unquote, which the poet then quote, recollects in tranquility, unquote. So you have the the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Then you you recollect this in tranquility. So there's some nostalgia built in there. Um, What is he talking about?
1: Yeah, I think, I keep saying I think, I'm sorry. (laughs) He is kind of doing a 180 for poetry So, before this, you have like the last really, really, really great English poet before Wordsworth. I mean, universally accepted as such. I mean, people have little like pet projects that they. My my boy
0: is John Donne, so if you don't say John Donne right now.
1: I mean, it's not John Donne, but it would be Milton. So, if you were like.
0: Wait, when was Milton around though?
1: Way earlier.
0: Okay, can we just can we just say that John Donne was really awesome? John Donne is really awesome. Okay, thank you. Cause you're about to hurt my feelings.
1: Yeah, John Donne's really awesome, and he's really really awesome for a lot of modern poetry. And he's a pre, um,
0: he's a pre-romantic poet.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: kind of laid the groundwork for them in some ways.
1: Mm-hmm. But what Wordsworth did that was revolutionary compared to Virgil and Milton and Dante. Um, was kind of say, hey, this poem is about me. So instead of it being, like, I'm writing an epic about Satan or about hell or about, uh, you know, Ulysses or whatever. Yeah. Um, Or I'm writing kind of these, like, idyllic um, little, like, narrative poems. Mm -hmm. I'm going to write about, I'm going to try to capture... Sustained reflective thought and feeling into the artifice of language, and he did a really, really good job at that. Like an unbelievably good job. So we could
0: say that that if we take Wordsworth as kind of um, an inflection point, that Romanticism is taking the turn to the subjects
1: accomplished
0: Mm -hmm. by the Enlightenment—that is, humans thinking about their own thoughts and selves. And it's kind of including feelings and reflection upon feelings in that mix.
1: Yeah. And I think the second part of his quote is really important. And it's what we talked about at the very beginning where people like, people really like the first part of that quote Yeah, where it's like a spontaneous overflow of emotion. It's like, oh, I have those all the time. I'm Wordsworth. And it's like, well, the second part is his actual methodology, mm-hmm. which is, the reflection and, and, yeah
0: and tranquility yeah
1: mm-hmm. it's kind of he goes back and it's almost it also kind of he's really interesting because he predates psychology in a lot of ways If his thing was kind of i'm taking my childhood experiences and showing how they formed me as an adult which was also a kind of revolutionary idea at the time and so you have wordsworth and his bff coolridge who were near each other all the time, and Coolidge was just a lot darker than Wordsworth. Um,
0: Rhyme of the An- Ancient Mariner, look it up.
1: Mm-hmm. If, you ever, the, if,
0: you ever, <laughs> if you ever want to know why people talk about people having albatrosses around their neck, then there yeah. you go.
1: And if you really want to just get your mind bl- just blown, uh, Kublai Khan
0: mm. is
1: a great, great poem by him. Who wrote um, uh,
0: La Belle Dame Sommacy? I have no idea. I'm going to look that up. The beautiful woman without mercy. It's one of my favorites. It might be it might be Keats, but I'm not maybe it's Byron. I'm not sure. I'm going to look it up.
1: Um I I think so it's good to see that these two guys were very dedicated to that idea that he said. And so they were a little bit this sounds weird when Keats. you're talking about Keats wrote it. Yeah, it's so okay. good. That Can sounds, I read like, it to weird. you? Uh yeah.
0: Okay. Sorry, guys, this is about romantic poetry. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's it's too long. Actually, yes, I will. All right, just deal with it, guys. This is a podcast. So this is by uh, Keats, who is pretty great, John Keats. Um, he wrote it in 1819. Um, so La Belle Dame Salmacy is The Beautiful Woman Without Mercy. And it's really beautiful. And I'm not a great poetry reader, but I think it's going to show you a little bit of what we're talking about here. Oh, what can ail thee, knight-at-arms, alone and palely loitering? The sedge has withered from the lake, and no birds sing. Oh, what can ail thee, knight-at-arms, so haggard and so woe-begone? The squirrel's granary is full, and the harvest's done. I see a lily on thy brow, With anguish moist and fever dew, And on thy cheeks a fading rose, Fast withereth too. I met a lady in the meads, Full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, And her eyes were wild. I made a garland for her head, And bracelets too, and fragrant zone. She looked at me as she did love. And made sweet moan. I set her on my pacing steed, And nothing else saw all day long, For sidelong would she bend and sing A fairy's song. She found me roots of relish sweet, And honey wild, and manna dew, And sure, in language strange she said, I love thee true. She took me to her elfin grot, And there she wept and sighed full sore, And there I shut her wild, wild eyes with kisses for. And there she lulled me asleep, and there I dreamed, ah, woe betide, the latest dream I ever dreamt on the cold-hilled side. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale warriors, death-pale were they all. They cried, la belle dame sans merci hath thee in thrall. I saw their starved lips in the gloam, with horrid warning gaped wide and i awoke and found me here on the cold hills side and this is why i sojourn here alone and palely loitering though the sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing mhm that is romantic poetry yeah could you do and... a little analysis of that real quick like why is that romantic poetry why is that what you know what about that poem screams this is romantic poetry
1: Yeah, well, obviously it's, there's something about it that isn't quite as formal Mm -hmm. as poetry before it. So if you, there's not a structure, so to speak. I mean, obviously there is a rhythmic structure, but there isn't these hard lines of, you know, Virgil writing in this, highly structured Latin. It's not even that, a sonnet.
0: It's not even like, mm-hmm. this is how you write a sonnet. It's not a niambic pentameter. Yeah.
1: It's very freeform, but also controlled and also focusing on immediate emotion. You know, mm-hmm. So at the end, it's not like butter, 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 butter. And now we know. Don't go out lusting because mm-hmm. you, you might get burnt. It's more I'm trying to communicate fully the experience of love and infatuation and that overwhelming romantic kind of experience that comes along with
0: that. And I would say one of the signature things that makes this a romantic poem is that there's this kind of death is haunting this romance. This isn't Mm -hmm. pure. This is fun. I like this feeling. There's something haunted about the romance. Like this is, like at the end, there's all these like starved knights telling them this woman has you in her thrall. Uh, we're 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 death pale. We're we're starved, you know. And I awoke alone on this hillside, and I sojourn now, and no birds are singing, and the plants are dead. Like this isn't just love. This isn't just shall I compare the two summers day, right? This mm-hmm. is this isn't just romantic love as we think of it. it there's something dark and something like nature is there but it's like there's death and nature and and kind of like maybe ghosts are there as well maybe pe- there's dead people talking to us and so fantasy yeah fantasy fa- the word fairy is used a couple times like like the like things that we can't see but 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 something's going on here and so this haunted love is a big part of what romanticism Kind of brought to the table because it is a reflection upon the feelings that we have like so we have this feeling of love and that's a first order thing like oh my gosh this woman's so beautiful i'm haunted by her beauty but romantic poetry at least and i think literature as well is a individual kind of inward looking reflection upon what those feelings actually mean and i think that's one of the differences
1: oh absolutely and what i was saying is Coming from Wordsworth and Coleridge and getting into the, the new crowd of Keats and Shelley and Byron, they definitely have a much, much um, darker aesthetic than um, the older guys would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I, and I mean Shelley with Osmandius mm-hmm. and his wife writing Frankenstein. Yep. And Byron's entire life basically yep. is just one big like, ooh, a little bit spooky, yeah. you know. Um, and I think I think that kind of goes into it too. In real romanticism, it is all
0: of the emotions that are yeah, becoming not, more not relevant. Just the pleasant ones,
1: yeah, and, and including that, sadness yeah, as and, well. And that
0: shows us one of the main cheapenings. Of what we consider romance today, because romantic comedy and twilight and things like that. Like, instead mm-hmm. of, think about this idea. One of the original or early kind of versions of Dracula or of vampires is that the sun burns them alive. Mm-hmm. And that idea was preserved in most stories about vampires until very recently, where now, as I read at the beginning of the podcast, instead of the sun, Burning Edward Cullen alive in Twilight. It simply Mm -hmm. makes his skin sparkle and makes him even more beautiful. And that's why he Mm -hmm. has to hide himself and not be in the sun so people won't know he's a vampire. That is a perfect symbol of the cheapening of uh, the romantic aesthetic or the romantic ethos. Wait,
1: is that their actual reasoning? Yes. Why they don't go in the sun? Because they would be too smart. Oh, I I didn't know that.
0: Yes. Like, how cheap is that compared to, I will die if I go outside?
1: Well... And also the kind of dr- the like star-crossed loverness of vampire sexuality, I guess, which okay. I love that I should get that tattooed on my back. Yeah, um, is really has a lot to do as well with like the idea that this person might be really romantic and charming and educated and aristocratic, but they live every couple of days by killing a human being. Mm -hmm. So like, no matter how to go from something in Dracula of like, hey, um, Dracula just got a baby and put it in a bag and threw it on the floor and fed it to these weird like, gypsy prostitutes that live in his house. Isn't he so romantic? Like, but so yeah that is i really did not know that that was their reasoning behind them not going in the sun yeah it was, that's almost too ironic we've like,
0: domesticated the dark gothic horror aspects of romanticism because mm-hmm. they're not pleasant
1: yeah well and i think another good this is a good time to bring up the sublime and the importance that that plays in romantic thought as well
0: explain uh, the sublime
1: yeah, so the sublime, it, people have different definitions for it, but a good one is when you see a flower, you know, imagine if you will, you see a really pretty, like, chrysanthemum or something, and you're like, wow, that's really beautiful, great. Like, not great, but that's really beautiful. When you stand at the base of Mount Everest, or if you, you know, see a giant, like, Niagara Falls,
0: or if you've ever been on a boat in the middle of the ocean.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's just, you're so small, and it's so big, and it's so overwhelming. But it's, and it's terrifying, but there's also something so beautiful about it. Like, almost too beautiful. And that can happen with, in orders of magnitude, like I just said. But it can also happen with something that's so... True. And true in a way that when Keats says truth is beauty and beauty is truth, there's that really intense connection of like that life lesson thing you learn or you feel like you've learned from art sometimes where you just see a movie and you're like, that was true, even though you know it was false. There's kind of this weird, it's almost like with the Sublime, Kant defines it as all of your faculties are kind of going like, whoa, like just freaking out, basically. Because yeah. there's just, it's too much, whether in terms of physical size our power our truth our beauty, it's, it's just overwhelming. too much. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't want to get too, too much further into what romanticism was without giving a nod to uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was kind of a pre-romantic philosopher. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a French philosopher that wrote Émile Uh, Emile is a book about education and how the child is this innocent kind of being that we corrupt over time with our, our civilization and our machines and our, um, and Emile was like so, so, so influential in France and then in other countries subsequently. And Rousseau came along a a little bit earlier than romanticism. He was kind of active in the 1700s, but Mm Emile was a big deal because basically said that we should be more like children. And that was an not a new idea, but it was a, a rebirth of an idea that, that children and innocence and nature and the way things are by themselves are better than how we make them through organization and machinery and industry and society. And these ideas are taken up in the poetry of people like Keats and, and Coleridge and others, but they're also taken up in the philosophy of other romantic philosophers and then transcendentalist philosophers like Emerson and Thoreau um this i these ideas of innocence nature and the child what are the what are the significance like for you first of all why do you think those those became such important ideas and secondly what do you think their significance was for the romantic kind of movement overall or even just philosophically
1: yeah, um...
0: No, that's a hard question. Sorry to, like, give you... it's,
1: yeah, you know, like, I'm a like,
0: lot. It's <laughs> really a I'm, lot. am like, making you give, like, an oral defense of, like, your, your knowledge romantic. of romantic uh, philosophy.
1: Thank God I took that class. Holy crap. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Innocence is great. It, let's start with Innocence, so...
0: And a nod th- to William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Songs of
1: Mm-hmm. Which that's another person that we like completely left out, and I think it goes without saying, or at least it should be said, um, these overviews that we do, and we always say this, but I mean it every time. <laughs> like the overviews we do, there are always loose in. Not you know. So comprehensive. like, comprehensive. Yeah, William Blake is a great example of like, okay, so this is like someone writing in the Romantic period; he was around then but he was also a visual artist. Yeah,
0: maybe someday and like, we'll do a whole podcast yeah, just on William Blake, and it would be this awesome. Just religious
1: dude, and crazy, crazy, and like maybe he doesn't fit into our things. But what we're talking about, with Wordsworth, back to him, and even with Goethe, there's this element to them of things that are noble and pure, and I think a child's fascination with the world, with being emotionally vulnerable with being in tune with instinct as well, which is a huge thing for them. These kind of like intuitive super knowledge almost um, becomes an amazing symbol. So in, in logically, if you follow from that, if children are in tune with that and adults are not, that means something has made us lose that. Mm-hmm. And I think they kind of use poetry, or in Goethe's case, uh, novels and short stories in um, in place as kind of how those losses of innocence happen. I mean, Faust is an amazing example of that in entirety.
0: Yeah, so the child is like a symbol of like a Edenic nature, right? That, mm-hmm. that sort of the Enlightenment is man... Uh, humankind coming of age right reflecting upon itself becoming very serious uh very german and very analytic and and very machine oriented as we've said now we're advancing we're using science and technology and we're changing our environment and so this is obviously partially a reaction to the negative aspects of that saying no 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 let's go back to our environment let's go back to nature let's go back to the way we were in some ways although we don't want to lose that sort of subjectivity that we've gained about reflecting upon our own selves and being individuals to a certain extent. But now it's, we're, we're feeling creatures and we're natural creatures and we're innocent and we want to be like children. Like in some ways, this coming of age um, has been unpleasant as most of the time it is.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's very true. There, and I think the error of literature that comes after that, especially in kind of the, like, German idealist period and within, in the Anglo world, this Victorianism is so indicative of, if you can kind of see romanticism as, it's, I think sometimes it's reduced as being very teenagey. Yeah. but in your analogy, it really is the, like, teen years of Western thought. Yeah. There is still an optimism, but it's not as pure as the Enlightenment. But it's also not as macabre really as like victorian mm-hmm. literature is
0: and how did um for you how does gothic relate to romantic like how did romanticism kind of lead to this the dark gothic stuff all of our cool monsters vampires frankenstein ghost stories like what's the what's the connection between all of these things yeah
1: uh well it's it happened. Simultaneously, I don't even know if people consider them separate yeah, movements so gothic, or like.
0: Yeah, so gothic is, we could say, the dark side of the moon of. of romance. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's always kind of hiding there. And it started out with these weird. It's always been. I see it as, oh, well, this emotional response can be pushed in very transgressive ways. And that's kind of been the gothic mainstay so even in the earliest gothic novels we have it's like men dressed as nuns like killing a woman and like carriage crashes and people sewing body parts together and blah blah blah. so it's really focusing on kind of pushing human experience to these horrifying limits yeah in an environment And this is, I think, really supports your uh, analogy. Almost every single gothic story is about a dark secret that someone in the past did that they thought that they could bury. And it's either literally coming out of the ground or it figuratively is, but it's back and it's ready. And there's always this fascination with Old decrepit symbols. So do you have the old, what you yeah. did
0: last summer.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is that is the height of gothic art. Um, but it's old castles. I mean, Dracula as a gothic figure is a great example um, because he's old world. Yep. You know, he's pre-industrial as well. Um, he's, in he's Eastern
0: Europe, and who wants to go there? In,
1: in a horrifying um just a horrifying region um it's filled with these references to like dense forests yeah all of these things that trans
0: transylvania Mm -hmm. Sil sylvan means forest you know the whole vlad the impaler transylvania like oh this is dracula he was around at the same time as leonardo da vinci blah blah blah
1: uh-huh. And Leonardo DiCaprio, actually. Whoa. A little bit of movie trivia for you. Dropping that knowledge on you. Yeah, um, very cool to see him out. In that
0: the poet who killed himself at age 17 is uh, Thomas Chatterton. and uh, um, So he killed himself in 1770, and then people are like, he's too beautiful to have killed himself, we need to do this. So we can say 1770 is considered by some to be the beginning of romance.
1: This man was too beautiful to die. Romanticism begins now.
0: <laughs>
1: That's exactly what they said. A,
0: you always need a pretty kind of cheerleader mascot for things, right?
1: Mm-hmm. <sighs> That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah,
0: just killing yourself because people don't like your poetry. Or because your family doesn't want you to be a poet. Just that. Yeah.
1: I think also it's if I'm being really personal about romanticism.
0: Well, please do.
1: Yeah, thank you. There's an experience of, hey, um, I'm trying to do this enlightenment thing, and it's not really working out, so what do I do? And I think that's where the darkness comes in. And what we were saying about Dracula, him representing that old-worldness, the thing that Europe's open, Now, quote unquote, but still having such a charismatic magnetic pool and being so influential, so powerful and not letting Europe go of those things Mm -hmm. um, is very indicative for me, along with romanticism. And I think the French Revolution is something that you could probably you will definitely speak better on than me, but it was unbelievably pivotal for some people to stop. Being romantic,
0: yeah. Uh, think,
1: when the French Revolution happened, yeah,
0: I think well, yeah. So French Revolution happened in the early kind of phase of Romanticism, maybe mm-hmm. it, maybe it kind of killed off some of the French romantic stuff because then it definitely shifts to England and Germany and and America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this whole like Romanticism is about the common man, right? The nobility mm-hmm. of the natural state, not not the state that we set up around ourselves with all these rules and laws and regulations. It's about emotions and reflecting upon emotions and when you're a bunch of common poor, starving peasant type people you're like my emotion is anger (laughs) and I want to do something about this and you know what? Like Those people over there they pretend to be so rational and so enlightened but they're really just bad versions of us and they have all this food and we don't have any of it and instead of sort of explaining it away, we should probably just kill them all and, like, take their stuff and then give it mm-hmm. to everybody because that's what we feel is right. You know, that there's a reason they called it a reign of terror. Like, literally, a reign of terror. And, like, they wanted to deconstruct the whole edifice of... of people and titles and religion and institutions. And it was really like a leveling. It was wanting to, to make everyone level. And there is something romantic about everyone being equal, right? Everyone having mm-hmm. like the same thing and like us all kind of getting together. And I mean, they were called the sans- sans-culottes, which are the people without shoes.
1: Yes. They're
0: walking around barefoot e- either because they can't afford shoes or because they don't want to wear shoes. I'm not an expert in that, but that was part of
1: part Can you just get family. back to me on the, on when you figure that out, please?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. The the French Revolution, I think, marks both both the, the end of a certain kind of romanticism, especially for France, and the beginning of, you know, the political ramifications of romanticism. Um, which, I mean, were felt even to the nineteen hundreds, particularly because of the influence of Johann wolfgang von goethe a german mm-hmm. could you tell us a little bit about goethe and why he was influential
1: um yeah i'm about to <coughs> cough
0: yeah nick's a little sick guys so we very to... i'm a
1: little out of it i feel like my thoughts have been kind of
0: rambling. no well we just want to let you know that it's not contagious through the through the podcast you're not going to get sick by by listening so just be at ease as we talk about Goethe real quick, and then we're going to move on to maybe some final thoughts. But Goethe's really important because he helps bridge romanticism with something that's probably a lot darker that happens in the 20th century. But Hey, what about Goethe? Oops. Oops.
1: Uh, Goethe is like the genius of geniuses for, for, or was considered for a long time. So you have this guy who... By the way, it, if
0: you look up Goethe, there's no R in it. It looks like Goethe. G-O-E-T-H-E. Goethe. But thanks, German.
1: Yeah, love you so much. Miss you. Thank yeah. you. Um, he was an amazing writer. He wrote plays. He wrote novels. And the subject matter of these things change. He was also into science and did a lot of experience, experiments on uh, even anatomy and like light and weird classification things he was very political and was almost like a sage in, a, in, a, in the modern period so people had this sort of reverence for him because he was almost like a renaissance man he did everything um, obviously his science isn't great um, to modern standards but his books are still really good And kind of what Goethe did that's interesting is he allowed Germany's Germans to be a little bit more romantic by making it a little bit more moral. So there isn't this kind of full swing, ha ha, whatever, like, let's just go straight into emotion and stuff, because like Faust, um, it's a morality tale still and maybe he complicates it a little bit by kind of leaving some things open ended sorry <laughs> but he definitely starts injecting a little bit more structure into this and that's because personally he believed that this kind of giving yourself completely into it he would be horrified by um that man's the poet, the seventeen-year-old poet, suicide boys' yep. decision, and I think I don't know if this is true or not. It probably, I'm guessing, it is. But his his like breakout hit novel, which I have to look up. I'm so sorry.
0: Sorrows it's, of Young Werther.
1: Yeah, is basically a kind of about that. So it's like a beautiful soul that can just not handle existence in the world. Um, yeah.
0: Well, one thing about Goethe and about great art, and especially when it's very tied to (coughs) a social identity or a unified identity, um, one thing about that is that it can start to cultivate a sense of something that we like to call nationalism. And I think one of the things that started to happen because of Goethe and, and other romantic poets is nationalism is more a feeling than anything else. Would you agree, Nick? Yeah. So, you so preserving a feeling. Really. Yeah. So you get a sense of German nationalism and you get a sense of a little bit of an English nationalism. And of course, we had a French nationalism and a Napoleon helped kind of uh, raise that up to another level and then you get american nationalism oops all of a sudden late 1800s all these different Mm. countries have this really romantic feeling of wanting to just you know really be proud and and reflective of who they are and what their national character is and what their ethos and aesthetic is and sometimes that can oopsie boopsie lead to a world war kind of and i'm not saying romanticism mm-hmm. led to world war 1 but what i am saying is mm-hmm. it was a necessary but not sufficient cultural movement that enabled some of the the thought and think feeling patterns that did um kind of lead to what has been called the powder keg of europe
1: yeah i would say that
0: cuz i like to blame like modernism and enlightenment stuff on world wars but we also have to like give romanticism its due it wasn't oh, just. Totally. A, it wasn't just like a cold, like, we are all right. We are all building our computer cases against each other and we will have a world war. It was also like, we're the best, yo. Like, look at our country. It's so cool. Like, we're the mm-hmm. best. Like, we're Germans and being German feels really good.
1: Yeah. Maybe it was fueled by romanticism and enacted with enlightenment and
0: industrial oh, process. Oh.
1: I think that's why it's so gross. Because, like... All of the travesties were done in such a calculated, scientific oh, yeah. way, it, and through scientific means. I mean, people weren't like dressing as knights and actually fighting as knights. They were just dressing as knights and walking around Germany for some reason. It was all about um,
0: mobilization schedules. Like, <laughs> have you had read any kind of news, like papers of the time, or or, or uh, early histories of World War One. It's all all about mobilization schedules because everything's about we got to get our machines up and going, got to get our trains, got to get our, our our little like movers of men and our little cars and trucks and horses and we got to mobilize. And it was all about this kind of this numerical mechanical language. But it was also about like, because we're the best, <laughs> like our country is the best and we love it so much. You know, that was mm. a big part of it.
1: And how right they were.
0: Exactly. Germans were the best, and French people were the best, and English people were the best, and Americans were the best. So there you go. Everyone was the
1: best. Period. Done. thanks. all at
0: once. But up. But up. um. So if you had to give our audience something to take away from romanticism, without cheapening it, or you know, also acknowledging kind of the dark side of it, or if you had to kind of say, hey, if you want to explore romanticism more, or know, know more about it you know, where would you kind of leave our audience in terms of like, hey, like this is romanticism and here's how to take the next step or this is what we should learn from it?
1: I would say most, on um, my most conservative, <laughs> Excuse me. I would say romanticism is a great lesson of trying to weed out certain elements of human culture doesn't ever really work. It normally just causes a giant counter swing. So if you're looking at it from a purely historical view without even talking about what romanticism is about, it's just like, hey, in the alignment, we really thought we could just get rid of all this stupid baby stuff that uh, why are we even doing this? We're so smart. And it's like, oh, well, 100 years later, everyone's saying the exact crazy opposite to the other extreme. Mm-hmm. And I think it just goes to show you that some things are part of the human condition, yep. period. And if your personal philosophies can't deal with sustained thought, you probably have a problem. If your personal philosophies can't deal with emotional experiences and they're just, you just try to ignore them, you probably have a problem as well. So, it's kind of a lesson in I guess balance are just not be, not i guess non non radicalness sometimes.
0: And I would say like I give Hegel a hard time sometimes cuz I think mm-hmm. some of some of his stuff is incredibly dangerous. Uh mm-hmm. Ger- German idealism is like they're so loaded. Um but i think what hegel does a really good job on and and i'll i'll kind of make this my my final my final word is hegel recognizes that opposites have a place in dialogue with one another to bring us to something that is more balanced and that's his idea of thesis antithesis synthesis that that we should be learning from ex, from the extremes that we should be re learning from historical reactions and We should try not to live in one extreme or the other, but to let them have a conversation and find something that integrates the best parts of both of them. So that would be my takeaway is like if you're someone who leans really, really, really rationalist or empiricist or enlightenment or machine kind of thinking, like seek out things that are going to be beautiful and natural and childlike and innocent and romantic to try to at least learn from them, incorporate some of the lessons that they can teach you. And if you're the opposite, if you're someone who, like, listens to My Chemical Romance or only reads Twilight, maybe, like, learn some stuff about physics or science or pick up a mm-hmm. book on Newton or, like, study math. Because I think it's a great weakness of our society that sometimes you can specialize in one kind of thing and completely ignore everything else.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, I would very recommend that
0: yeah so Nick Nick today you know he felt sick, but he decided to buck up and do a podcast for you guys, so you know he overcame his you know woe is me couch fainting mm-hmm. lemmy gothic day, and he just decided, yeah. you know what I'm gonna put on my big boy pants and just make a podcast just mechanically using my brain, so I appreciate that thanks for uh thanks for uh fighting through that for us, Nick,
1: oh no problem. I just hope I didn't ramble too much. I feel like I wasn't really on my A game.
0: <laughs> I don't think you were on your A game, but I think your B plus game is better than most people's A game. And I mean that.
1: That is so sweet. <laughs> and I mean that too. I'm really condescending. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, bless your heart.
1: Oh, that, oh my God. That is so sweet.
0: <laughs> it's so funny because sometimes when you try to say something that's unironic, it comes out <laughs> sounding really ironic.
1: I'm so sorry about that.
0: Well, I hope that you feel better soon, Nick. But for now, this has been Ryan. And Nick. And you'll hear from us next week. Bye. 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 Vampires.